0: Uh, let me just open, start us with a word of prayer, uh, Father. Thanks for this morning. Thank you that we can come to your Word uh, in Micah, and we pray that as we come to it, that it would not remain obscure, but that we would be able to understand it rightly and apply it faithfully, so that we would live lives that are fruitful and pleasing to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, um. Alright, so I just copied like almost very closely uh, Michael's one, And so we'll start with who is Micah? Who is Micah actually? And so if you uh, if you look at Micah 1.1, Harry, you want to read yeah. that? Uh,
1: the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hazekiah, kings of Judah which you saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem.
0: Yes. And so Micah here, um, that's the only thing we know about Micah. He's Micah of Moresheth. Moresheth. And Moresheth is like 20. So if this is Jerusalem. That's like the capital, right? Where everything, where the big people are at. important people. Moresheth is like maybe 22 miles this way. And so it's like in the middle of like nowhere. It's like a, he's like a country prophet. And so he wasn't like, he wasn't like an important person like Isaiah who was uh, prophesying before kings. So he was like, uh, he was like this guy from nowhere. This is, um, and then, let's see, something else that the commentary said was that he is often known as a prophet of the poor because of how much he indicts the rich for taking advantage of and not taking care of the poor. This kind of sounds like a right? Like the social justice prophet, prophet of the poor. Um, and then, okay, we'll go to number two. What was the historical context of Micah's ministry? Uh, we're, we're not going to read that verse again because it was, we just read it. <laughs> but uh, what's really interesting is just like learning about like the history of Israel and like what was going on with the exile and everything. And so, it's, it tells us that he, he was a prophet in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. These were kings of Judah, right? Judah was to the south, and Israel was to the north. And so, Michael was primarily a prophet to the south, but he also prophesied to the north and to the north. Um, Amos, last week we re- we learned about Amos, and Amos... Uh, he prophesied to Jeroboam and Israel. this was like uh, maybe like fifty years before Micah started. Anyway, this is really interesting. but what's important to realize is that uh, if you guys remember, Israel went into exile first to Assyria. Right, gonna, Assyria. and then Judah, you know, a couple hundred uh, a couple of years later to Babylon. I think something that's really, a really easy way to remember this is that I comes before J, and it's on top of I comes before J, and then Israel went into captivity before Judah, so to Assyria, and A comes before B. So, I've I learned that somewhere before. Uh, I think it's interesting. Anyway, so Micah prophesied during Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Basically, Jotham and Hezekiah were good kings, and Ahaz was a bad king. He's like, A. ass. <laughs> Take that out, Marshall. All right. So, uh, let's see. Oh, um, and so, like we were, t- like Pastor Michael was saying earlier, this was like the golden age of Israel, right? Uh, during this time, Assyria was like kind of weak. And so they were like doing their own stuff out out here in Assyria, and so during this time, like they're like getting really rich, and because they're rich, they're getting corrupted, and people aren't like not taking care of the poor, they're taking advantage of the poor and so this is when like things start to like get messed up right because Israel goes into captivity in 722 and this is like in the middle of Micah's ministry, and so we'll see like we'll see how that turns how that comes into play. um okay. Any questions about this? Like, what's going on, or what, what was happening? All right, um, Tub. We'll, we'll go to. Why is Judah under judgment? Can you read just the first three verses of Micah three? Okay. Okay,
1: Micah three, and I said here, <clears throat> you you hear herds of Jacob, rulers of the house of Israel. Uh, is it not of you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin off my people and their flesh off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and and flay their skin from uh, from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron? Um,
0: <coughs> and so. Let's see. The way Micah is broken up, uh, a lot of times the way the prophets are broken up is there will be these oracles of judgment, these lamentations, and then... So lamenta- oracles of judgment is like, Micah is like, the prophet will st- t- say to the people, you guys suck. And then lamentation is like, oh, why do you guys suck so much? <laughs> and then the oracle of hope is like, God loves you even though you suck. like that. Like, so that's kind of like a basic outline that excuse me, uh, happens throughout the prophets. And so in Micah, we there's like three of those, uh, three different times where there's like a set of like Oracle of Judgment and Oracle of Hope. So we're just going to look at <clears throat> one of them. Um, so in Micah 3, we read, uh, Here you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. And so in this one, he, he in, the, in the third chapter, he begins to like indict different people, the, the civil leaders, the religious leaders, the prophetic leaders. Uh, and so in this in this verse right here, here you heads of Jacob, right? That's, he's talking about uh, the people who have like, political control at the time, uh, rulers of the house of Israel. Okay. This isn't like, well, I should say. Um, first of all, he he tells them, "Is it enough for you to know justice." Uh, that in the Old Testament, like a lot of times, like especially in King David, they talk about how they they delight in the law, they they delight in righteousness. And right here, Michael is saying, "You don't do that." you suck right he says uh, you hate the good and love the evil and then he begins to use like really vivid imagery uh, now what was what was going on was that uh, these rich people instead of using their instead of using their privileged positions to help the poor um, they would use it to take advantage of the advantage of the poor right like they wouldn't listen to the cause of the poor or listen to their uh, what was going on, but then instead they just like exploited them or listened to the rich people would take bribes, and so he uses this really vivid imagery right um, and the point of this imagery is that it 's not like the leaders were actually tearing the skin from off their people, their flesh from off their bones he wasn't they weren't actually like eating the flesh of the people, but he 's using this imagery to to just show how serious it is that they are taking advantage of the poor Uh, he uses the the language of cannibalism Uh, and so because it's like grinding poverty of the poor is going to lead the poor into like an early death uh, early grave the prophets are saying that they are like cannibals any questions about that about the first first three verses yeah they didn't really chop them up like meat in a pot and flesh in a cauldron. But you guys understand the language, right? Like you guys know what meat in a pot is and flesh in a cauldron is. A cauldron is like the thing, like a big pot that like witches brew their potions in. Like, this is wood. This is like fire. So he's saying that they're like tearing the skin and it's going into this cauldron where they're gonna eat it. All right. Um, if we read on. The, mic, the prophet Micah goes on and he says, Jeff, can you read the next three verses, nine or four verses, nine through 12?
1: Here are the has heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height.
0: Yeah. Alright, so we'll, we'll say in verse... We'll start on verse 10. It says, Who builds Zion with blood, and Jerusalem with iniquity. And earlier we are talking about how, like, there was, like, a lot of money going on. Right before the Assyrians were coming into the picture, and so because of that, like there were there was a lot of like different building projects, and Micah saw these building projects. But instead of like, instead of praising their creativity, or instead of like saying, oh, you know, these business entrepreneurs are so good for like investing into the local economy or something like that. Instead of saying all that, he uh, points to the economic basis, which is exploitation of the poor. Right, he's saying that. Um, they are building Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Iniquity is sin. That's a fancy word for sin, all right? Um, now, in verse eleven, it says, "Its heads give judgment." First of all, its heads—the the antecedents is if you basic English, right? Verse nine it's talking about the rulers of the house of Israel, head, uh, heads of the house of Jacob. So he's saying that the the civil leaders are giving judgment for a bribe, right? So these are like. The judges at the time, the people who have like political power, it's priests teach for a price, it's prophets practice divination for money. So basically, he's saying that everybody is corrupted by a love for money. Um, whether it's civil leaders or spiritual leaders or prof- prophets, they're all like, they'll do things for money. And then this is when, like, it really begins to, like, he, he really gets in on them and he says, Yet, they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Um, they're not, so when, when they say that, when Michael says that, he's saying like, what was going on was uh, these leaders would go to the Old Testament and would look at things like, where it says like, God is with you. God is going to bless you. God is not like against you. And so he would, they would tell themselves, oh, God is going to bless us. We're like doing these things and God is in our midst. So he's not going to destroy us, right? But that's obviously not true. <laughs> um, there's lots of places where, uh, in the Old Testament where it talks about if they break the covenant, uh, if they break their covenant obligations, then curses will fall on them, not blessings, curses. And so um, he's like telling them, no, actually. Uh, and in verse 12 he says, therefore because of you, not because of like your weak military, not because of your like weak political diplomacy but because of your moral failure because of your like failure to honor god and love the poor uh, because of you zion shall be plowed as a field jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins okay so plowed as a field that's kind of like we um we talked a little bit about this yesterday right so there's like a field that needs plowing and so what happens when a field is plowed Oxen, like, just come and, like, you know, just, like, walk all over and just, like, it's, like, empty, right? There's, like, nothing there, right? (coughs) Uh, This is the yoke. (laughs) Right? Uh, It's going to be plowed as a field. There's going to be, like, nothing there. Nothing's going to be remaining. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. Uh, The NIV, like, says, uh, become a heap of rubble. And so it's just it's going to be, like, uh, it's just going to be broken down. Uh, And the last line of that, it says, and the mountain of the house, a wooded height, a wooded height. Now, this, uh, it's hard to, uh, I had to look at some commentaries, but basically what's going on is the mountain of the house. Normally, what it says in the prophets will say, the mountain of the house of the Lord. But he's saying that by just saying the mountain of the house is implying that God is no longer there. It's just a house on a mountain. It says it's going to become a wooded height instead of becoming, instead of being like this glorious temple that it once was, I don't know, I'm trying to draw a temple, it's just going to be a building, a structure on a hill. It, God is not going to reside there. And in some ways, that's the greatest curse. Uh, more than the curse of life. Exile, more than the curse of, of, I don't know, your children being taken away. Uh, the fact that God is no longer going to be in the temple and be among the people uh, is to, Greatest curse, and so there's lots of different things that were going on—bribery uh, or like injustice, um, like people who thought that God still blessed them, even though God was like clearly against their sinfulness. Uh, all these different things. Any questions about Micah chapter three? Oh, and by the way, something that's really interesting is that Jeremiah, who comes like a hundred years later. Uh, in Jeremiah, they quote Micah three, chapter uh, verse twelve. Uh, they quote that, and basically, like what was going on was like Jeremiah is like telling the king at the time. He's like, oh yeah, you guys are gonna, you guys are gonna die. You guys are going go to exile. And then people are like about to like kill Jeremiah. And then some elders were like, actually, Micah said the same thing to us, like, and then said so are like, oh okay, we we won't kill Jeremiah. Then. <laughs> but it, I think it's really interesting that like, uh, even within that time that short amount of time uh, Micah becomes uh, part of the canon okay no questions um, and then we'll talk and then let's go to Micah chapter 6 uh, let's see uh, David can you read just uh, verse
1: 6 and 7 yeah so Micah 6
0: Alright, great. Um so so what's going on is uh in the first four verse no, five verses of chapter six, God is basically telling Israel He's retelling Israel like I've done all these things for you. I brought you out of Egypt, I've done like all I've acted towards you with graciousness and kindness, and yet why do you why do you still rebel? And then people... And so this is like other people saying to God, right? They're saying, uh, what is it? Uh, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God? And, uh, and so their they're thinking is like, what do I have to give to God in order for God to be pleased with me? And so this is like almost a question that everybody asks in every generation. What do I have to do in order to be, to be a good person? And so they begin to like ask a series of questions. It says, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil, my first bo- form. So basically, they're like asking like, okay, burnt offerings, calves, like they're just going like, it's getting bigger and bigger, right? Uh, thousands of rams, <laughs> and so on, uh, rivers, uh, first one, and so their thinking is that by giving up certain things, they can also bribe God. In the same way that um, the political and religious leaders at the time were able to be bribed, they're thinking that oh, you know, you can just give things to God and he'll be pleased. He'll be he'll, he's bribable. He's buyable almost, right? And then God replies with. Um, verse 8, he says, uh, this is Micah, actually. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This, by the way, is like one of the most famous verses from Micah. A lot of people like to quote this. Uh, And Pastor Michael has done a... He mentioned this verse when he was doing this uh, mercy ministry uh, Sunday school a couple months ago. But basically, one thing that's important to realize... That I didn't know at the time, was that these three things, love, do justice, love, kindness, walk humbly. That um, these three things don't imply three different things. That um, it's not like, oh, you know, sometimes I'll do justice, and then other times I'll walk humbly with God. Maybe once in a while, I'll love kindness. But... He like the way Hebrew poetry works is that these three things all point to like the same thing, which is basically like I guess I don't know a good life, a good person. Uh, so it's not like you can just choose like two out of three and be like, oh yeah, you know, I do justice and walk humbly, I'm not good at loving kindness. But like no, it's like these uh, all three are integrated into the one same thing. And if you look at it, what's interesting is that walk humbly, like our relationship with God, the vertical relationship is only one out of the three. Doing justice and loving kindness, these are horizontal actions. And so it's important to (laughs) love other people. It's not enough to just say, oh yeah, I have this like awesome private relationship thing going on with God. Uh, But rather, uh, Micah tells us, teaches us that all three are critical. Uh, Michael Wood has even said like, yeah, if you don't love the poor, then you're probably according to the prophets, you're probably not a believer. Right. Um Alright. Any questions about Micah chapter six? A lot of a lot of like people like to quote this. Sometimes more liberal ones, but it's in the it's in the Bible, so we'll still talk about it. Alright. Um and so because based on these things, uh, Micah is prophesying you know, judgment, doom. Uh, I didn't use like some of the other ones, but like because um, I thought I wanted to talk about Micah eight six eight. but these are really good. Um, and so Micah is, again, like saying like they have broken the covenant. They are going to be judged. They, the same way that Israel was taken away into captivity, that Judah also will. Um, not this Judah but Judah also will be judged and taken away into exile <laughs> alright I don't know what I'm okay um, let's go to the last point what is the hope of Judah um, let's see Melissa can you read the six verses of chapters 5
1: now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid, laid. Siege is laid against us. With the rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall get them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod as its entrances. And he shall deliver us from Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our
0: border. Great. And so, um, like I said earlier, there are like um, roughly three oracles of hope that Micah uh, shares in his book. Um, And this is obviously, or but this is one of them. So what's going on here? Uh, This was like really difficult to understand. without the help of, like, like what's, uh, the prophets are just really hard to understand if you don't know what's going on historically, like, what they're talking about. And so we'll break this down verse by verse. So in Micah chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now musk troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And so a lot of comment, a lot of people would say that now refers... To the year seven hundred one BC. And what's going on is the king of Assyria, his name is like I don't know how to pronounce it. A senate. He's some king of Assyria and he's like at the gates of Jerusalem. He's about to like you know, like lay siege. Right? And so it says, Now must your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With a raw they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And so the the imagery of a rod striking the judge of Israel on the cheek is the imagery of like, basically like humiliation. The fact that somebody can't even like, defend themselves by raising a hand, so that the rod doesn't hit them on the face. Uh, basically it just talks about how defenseless they are and how, um, how defenseless they are and how uh, much humiliation they're about to face. Um. yes and so it says now must your troops and then in verse 2 it says but you Bethlehem of Ephrathah right but you um, so there's obviously like some kind of contrast that's being shown now and then he says in verse 2 but you and so a lot of people will say that now refers to like back then right like when uh, Michael was saying this or writing this and then but refers to uh not just at that time but like in the future in the future this place is going to produce something right and so let's see let's we'll, we'll just break this down uh, Bethlehem Ephrata Ephrata is the district and Bethlehem is the province in which this it, it resides right. So this is just the name of the town. And this is the name of the district. But what's important? Uh, this this town is not in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where all the kings, well, all the kings post David were coming from. Um, this is where like the hub was. This is where all the important things were. And Bethlehem is where nobody knew. It was like really insignificant. Uh, In the book of Joshua, when they're talking about like the 120 cities that they conquered, they don't even mention Bethlehem because it was so obscure and insignificant. And yet, God is saying that from this obscure and insignificant place, uh, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, from of old, of of ancient days. Um, there's two ways to understand this, and I don't think either one of them is wrong. Um, a lot of people would say that this can refer either to um, like like eternal preexistence, existence so this ruler that's supposed to come is going to come from like of all like eternal like, pre-existence, right? Like um, So like he will have been with God forever. Or it can refer to um, the old or ancient days, like as in the ancient tradition, which is uh, David's lineage, right? Um, David was also from Bethlehem. And so by saying like, oh, he, this ruler, this uh, this new ruler is going to come from Bethlehem. Uh, some people would also say that he's going to come from the Davidic lineage, not just from like, Um, the corrupted kings that have been coming from Jerusalem does that make sense any any questions so far alright if we read on it says uh, verse 3 therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. Okay. This was actually like, these next couple verses are like very, very confusing. And a lot of like commentators had like different. uh, So I was kind of like regretting like uh, adding this part, but we'll talk about it nonetheless. All right. So therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. So a lot of, um, I'm just going to go with, Michael's interpretation and not how the Baptist. safe bet. Yeah, safe bet. <laughs> no, the right bet. Uh, no. So, so if, if that's the case, then a lot of people would say that this verse refers to the first advent, or like the first coming of Jesus. Uh, and so basically it's saying that uh, he shall give them up until the time. So he, So he refers to God, shall give them up until the time. What's that time? What's so, the damn? What was that? Yeah, God is going to give them up until the time. And so... Who's the dam? Yeah, so earlier we just said that that these troops, the Assyrian army is at the gates of Jerusalem. And so a lot of people would say that this refers to God giving Israel, or Judah up rather, until the time when this ruler is supposed to come. And so this, like the people of God, Judah was going to be given up or like basically um, what does that mean to, to give up? yeah like God is not no longer gonna like uh, be as uh, intimate or protective uh, and a lot of people uh, and in the intertestamental time between Malachi and the coming of Christ there was like 400 years of drought, right where God's word was not being spoken or preached or I guess in the, in the, in the words of in the mouths of the prophets and so God is gonna give them up Judah I think he's talking about exile. Oh yeah, in exile <laughs> until the time, right? Um, when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. That's how you know it's exile. He's talking about return. Right. Well, uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, she who has given birth, uh, return. <laughs> Brothers return. Yeah. Right. And so Yeah.
1: But I mean what's really interesting about that is Mount Micah says they won't return until the birth of this coming king. Right? They won't come back into exile. Hmm. But if you look historically, they came back. Right? Daniel prophesied seventy years after exile they'll come back. And so uh, they actually came back, oh, I forget, like 500 BC or something, right? And so, but then Micah says they're not going to come back from exile until the king. And yet they're back. Isn't that crazy? Do you know what that means? Even as they're back, they're still in exile.
0: That's that's crazy. (laughs)
1: Meaning that, that a co- there's a coming back that's far deeper than
0: just coming back. They're pretty angry. Yeah, that's that's really good. I that's not what the commentaries like said, but that's what well, they like. It's like John MacArthur's commentary. And stuff. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I didn't I didn't see that part. But did you guys all get what Michael's saying. This is based on like. The, the, he was using some of the same language last week, and so basically, um, they're in exile, and they return just up, you know, after like what seventy years, right? And from five hundred to five hundred BC to whatever, like one AD, they're back in the land, like that, the land of Israel. And yet, over here, michael's saying. Uh, That they are still in uh, exile, that until he comes, you know, like Jesus, until Jesus comes, they they would still not be fully returned. And so he's not talking about like a physical land, because they're already back. But he's talking about like the true land, which is supposed to be the garden who is in Christ. Okay, and so we'll just read on. Um, he shall stand and shepherd this flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now and he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. And so what's going on? I thought that when in this time there's no more Assyrians, right? Like why is it still using in verse five the language of when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces. Basically, this is not like the the historically, like the state of Assyria, but this is just like uh, Assyria is being used as a symbol or as like a representative of basically our enemy, God's enemy. And so when the enemy comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. that's just poetic language to uh, imply that we will have enough more than enough shepherds and uh, princes of men who, who will be able to take care of us uh, they shall shepherd the land of assyria with the sword and the land of nimrod at its entrances and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and tread within our place. and so in verse six they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And so one way that I that this was explained was that the land of Assyria uh, and the land of Nimrod. Nimrod uh, is um, ancient Babylon. So those, those were like Babylonia. And so these like Represents the enemies again of God. And so these princes, these shepherds, will shepherd this land with the sword. And then you pointed this to being God's word.
1: I have a question for you. Yeah. Okay, so obviously Micah's not talking about a resurgent Assyria. Mm -hmm. Because when Jesus comes, who is this promised king? He's born in Bethlehem after all. When Jesus comes, the, the, the enemy, the oppressor, is Rome. And so Jesus' contemporaries, all the Jews, say, Aha! Jesus, you've come to deliver us from the Romans. Right? Which, is a, which is a reasonable interpretation from Micah, and not just Micah, but all the Old Testament prophecies. But Jesus didn't defeat the Romans. He failed. Explain
0: did Jesus fail
1: or did he not fail why didn't he deliver his people from the Romans why didn't he strike them with the rod like he promised why didn't he deliver his people
0: mm-hmm. it's how you interpret the land right and so uh, the Jews at the time represent, uh, interpreted the land as again being this physical place where uh, the Syrians and Nimrods who were supposed to be these physical oppressors uh, the Romans would now be uh, overcome or destroyed by this shepherd and but instead the way we understand it is that it wasn't it wasn't jesus attacking like the physical oppressor but a much more deadly oppressor which is satan and sin right and so god uh, his like his rescue or his giving us the land or like helping us return to this place wasn't just uh, a physical thing but it was um re- defeating the real enemy um not just like our political oppressors, but defeating the real enemy, which is death, sin, Satan. And so this is like much more um, deeper and, uh, and fulfilling. It's not just a land, a physical land that can, again, be taken away or <coughs> anything like that.
1: That right there blew everyone away because here comes Jesus. He's the promised savior the king. He's the shepherd whose who's rod is going to strike the enemy, and then he's crucified on the Roman cross. And everyone's natural conclusion is, okay, Jesus is not the Messiah. He obviously failed, because no Messiah would ever be crucified on the cross. But the wonder and the majesty of the gospel is that Jesus defeated Assyria. He defeated the enemies of Israel by dying on a Roman cross. And when Paul realized that, you know, when Paul was walking to Damascus, and he thought Jesus was the fake Messiah. He's not, he's no savior king, obviously. And then he meets the savior king on the road to Damascus, and then Paul's blinded, and Paul's like, I, I don't, I, how can I even understand the categories? His brain was exploding. That he realized all along, God was promising the far greater enemy would be conquered, which is sin and death. Yeah, and so I, that's like amazing. That's like the great, deep, paradox mystery of Christianity. The symbol of conquering is an execution
0: chair. <clears throat> That's, that's amazing. It's, 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 it's um, we really. We're, I'm just going I just want to make this uh, last thing about in Matthew, uh, how they also quote Micah and says, uh, "When Herod the king heard this, talk about like the Magi were coming and they were like looking for uh, the where Christ was to be born. Uh, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born." They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet uh, Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so it's interesting that even the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees at the time understood Micah in this in that verse and this or this this uh, chapter to be a, a prophecy as to where the, the messiah would come from and we know that the messiah jesus came uh, and defeated not just not not a political oppressor but a far greater oppressor that he, he didn't just save us from uh, a temporary exile but he saved us from eternal exile away from god that we can now enjoy the land uh, the promised land which is communion with god communion with christ any, any questions? I
1: think, um, uh, not to be lost in all this historical detail, but this is really the story of salvation. You know what I mean? It's just, uh, the Bible tells us the salvation story again and again and again, but in a thousand different ways, in a thousand different pictures, with a thousand different stories. You know? And so the story of Assyria... The army, you know, I think of like Lord of the Rings where the armies of Mordor are surrounding Minas Tirith, you know, and that's like that's what that's what's happening in Jerusalem, right? The armies of Assyria are surrounding the people of God, and they're like, This is it, this is over. God's saying, You know, a greater Aragon is gonna come, and so that's that's the story of salvation. That's why we, we can read Micah and then rejoice, you know, and be comforted,
0: yeah. It's, it's, it's really good. Uh, the prophets are worth studying. It, the prophets
1: is just telling us the gospel.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Just with colorful language. <laughs> it helps read Lord of the Rings, I think. <laughs> that,
0: that's the key to key. interpreting the prophets. I think so. <laughs> Tolkien. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. And Micah, thank you that it points us to Christ and how uh, even though we deserve judgment, even though... Uh, based on our sins and our, and our corruption, we deserve death, uh, that we can rejoice, that we can look back to a Savior, uh, one who has taken us now to the promised land where we can, through Him, commune with you and fellowship with you and rejoice in you. And we pray that we would uh, experience that more fully as we go into our worship service and that, we would, that, that you would continue to bless us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.